Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic D Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, the most trusted name in certified organic clean food. When you shop online at EdenFoods.com, enter the coupon code ORGVIEW to receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. And don't forget to check out our contest section. On today's show, I had the pleasure of welcoming Mr. Thomas Fleming, who published A Disease in the Public Mind, a new understanding of why we fought the Civil War. Now, it's very interesting how people have certain opinions that they formulated over the years, and also they take into consideration what has been going on in our current time. But when you read this book, you truly are able to step into the shoes of some of the people that were key components for the end of slavery, as well as to just be able to understand what the political environment was, what people were thinking, the fear that had been encouraged, as well as the love that had been shared by so many people who really wanted to see such a great change take place. So I would like to welcome to the show my guest today, Mr. Thomas Fleming, who is a distinguished historian and the author of more than 50 books. He's frequently been a guest on PBS, A&E, and the History Channel. And he's also contributed articles to American Heritage, MHQ, and other magazines. So I would like to welcome to the show Mr. Thomas Fleming. Good afternoon, sir, and welcome to the show. Good. I'm delighted to be with you. Uh, I don't think there has been a better meeting of the minds of people, of someone like yourself and me. I think we both think along the same line. We try to get below the surface of things and find out what's really going on. What's the answers to why why things happened? This has been my motivation right from the beginning. My, my first book was on the Battle of Bunker Hill, and that was always portrayed. I mean, I actually did a little survey, went around and said, what do you think of Bunker Hill? Was it a great American victory? And everybody said, I'm sure it was a great American victory. I said, no, it wasn't. It was a terrible American defeat. And that's the sort of thing that I've tried to shake people up with, you know, and, and I tried to look below the surface of, of, of how, how we almost lost the, lost the American Revolution. Uh, when I did a, novel, a, a book on, uh, the, on World War II, I found that there was another disease of the public mind, as I call it, that extended the war for a year and a half and killed millions of people. It was called unconditional surrender. And that was no reason why, we, we, why that got into the game, except people have a tendency to go with their prejudices and passions and let them do their thinking for them. This is what this book is, tries to do with the Civil War. It tries to show how there were deep antagonisms long before there was an argument over slavery. There were deep antagonisms between people in New England and in the South. And, and that is, that's what makes the war a tragedy. I, I, don't, I don't claim that, 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 if, if, that these antagonisms uh, could have been avoided. They, they just came out of the past, and they were, in the, they, they, they were in the hearts and minds 
of all these people on both sides, and uh, they they grew, you might say, in unexpected ways. History had a way of, of you might say, throwing unexpected uh, surprises at people. And, and no, and I might say, and, and I think this is something that you like to do too, is I, no one was more surprised than I when I started to find some of the reasons why we had the Civil War. Uh, let me take one example, which I, ha- I it's, it's, it's the heading, it's the, it's the title for one of the chapters, Thomas Jefferson's Nightmare. Mm. And that that book, that title, just leaped into my head as I read how Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence and hated slavery, nonetheless acquired this morbid fear of a slave revolt, and that made him a friend of slavery, You're not an enemy, you know. Uh, he 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 was a very uh, a complex man, and and in this particular case, the Thomas Jefferson's nightmare, he authorized the or or, or, or encouraged the French to invade what we now call Haiti to try to regain control of it, and it was a terrible disaster. Oh yeah, especially what the events that followed thereafter. Yes, yes, and so it ended in a massacre of all the white people on Haiti, and that was Thomas Jefferson's nightmare, which he then passed along. He couldn't help himself. He couldn't pass the, He passed it along to the south all the way through the next 50 years when, they, when people discussed why, why it would be a good idea to rid the south of slavery. And believe me, you, as you see, and you've, you've read the book, there's, there's, there were thousands of Southerners who hated slavery, who, who couldn't, but they couldn't figure out how to get rid of it because they had this Thomas Jefferson's nightmare eating away at their souls. Now, it's very interesting, as a professional, as a historian, as a journalist, as so many things that your career has encompassed, you have really lived through a lot of intense political um, if you will, atmospheres. Oh, have I ever, can yes. You, can you share with the, our audience what your career was like much earlier in, in life for you and some of the things that you had to do just to keep your philosophy intact as you were putting out these thoughts to your readers? I uh, I started out uh, well. I give it. I, there's a talk I give, uh, which has been v- very popular. I call it Encounters with History, and it's the story of my life. I've encountered history right from the beginning uh, of of my life. When I, I grew up in a very corrupt city called Jersey City, and my father was one of the top people who were involved in the corruption, and I started to think, why is this happening? You know, I was still a fairly young kid. And I realized that there, there was a, a, a philosophy, you might call it, of us against them. The Catholics and the Protestants in New Jersey had, had created this hatred or animosity between each other. And they translated that into politics. And that's why people like my father and his friends could justify saying, yeah, sure, we're selling lots of votes and so forth. But the... The Protestants are doing worse things, and they hate us, and we've got we've to gotta get power and keep it. And that, that whole us-against-them philosophy is, is, was, was, the, was, the, was the, one of my first discoveries of why people thought and felt 
about politics in this particular way. And then another uh, startling thing was uh, I was doing a book on the year 1776, and I suddenly... I, I'd done four years of research, and I had tons of files on it and so forth, and suddenly a phrase hit me right between the eyes. 1776, year of illusions. And I suddenly saw that both the Americans and the British began fighting that year with illusions about how to win the war. They both had the wrong strategy on, on winning the war. And only towards the almost at the end of the war, did George Washington realize that the Americans were fighting the wrong war, the wrong way? And he changed the whole strategy of the war, which the, where the Americans thought they could win it in one big battle. And when they got beaten very badly by the British in, in the summer of 76, Washington said, we will never seek a general action again. Instead, we will protract the war. And, and seven years later, we won. And that was the way, they, but that was how we won. Again, we had to get rid of these bad, these false ideas that were turning our minds in the wrong direction and creating an atmosphere of disaster and defeat. I think the book itself, A Disease in the Public Mind, really encompasses all of the, if you will, symptoms of disease. You oh, no doubt about it. It's, it's uh, uh, the public mind. Oh, that, that's something we might t talk about for a minute, uh, uh, June. The public mind was a phrase that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson used. Abraham Lincoln used it. Uh, even as recently as uh, 1956, uh, when, uh, uh, and 52, too, when Adlai Stevenson, the Democratic governor of Illinois, was running for the presidency, he said, those who debauch the public, who corrupt the public mind, are just as evil as those who steal from the public. And so this this idea that there was this view of reality, which they called the public mind, it isn't just public opinion. It's deeper than that. It, and it portrays, uh, in in uh, it, for instance, it, between political parties, the lies that they tell about each other to make them look bad. That's corrupting the public mind. And so this 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 idea of the public mind is is a is is a, a very powerful thing that we I think I've rediscovered in this book. And moreover, uh, when you add to the fact that there was a disease that, that, that this this public view of things could be diseased by passions and prejudices against other people within our own country, then we start to see how and why we fought the Civil War. It's very clever that you were able to piece all these different elements together in addition to the fact that you had uh, people like William Lloyd Harrison, or excuse me, William Lloyd Garrison, yes. who influenced the public through media. I mean, there's so many parallels between what was going on back then and what is going on today. It's just fabulous. That oh, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. You every little thing. And actually, in the chapter that you called The End of Illusions, you reference the Battle Hymn of the Republic and its counterpart, yes. Dixie. Once again, you demonstrate the clever manipulation of music. Oh, absolutely, yes. People towards a particular belief. And, oh, and I have a wonderful story connected to that, uh, June. Uh, the, the, the hero of this book 
is Abraham Lincoln. Uh, which, uh, and, but why he's a hero is because he saw through these diseases of the public mind. He had the answer if both sides could have only listened to him before we got into killing each other. And uh, his, his idea, Lincoln's idea, was that both sides had these hatreds, and, 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 and the, the answer to it was to start to try to put the hatreds aside and, and, and end what seemed to be the argument, which was about slavery. Uh, for instance, uh, in, the, in the, the last speech of his life, Abraham Lincoln, a few days before he was assassinated, he gave it from the White House. And uh, it was all about how he was going to try to reconcile the two parts of the country and put the whole country back together again. And somebody, towards the end, uh, somebody said, let's have a song. And everybody thought that Lincoln was going to choose the battle hymn of the republic. And he said, okay, we'll have a song. One of my favorites is Dixie. <laughs> and that's absolutely flawed, everybody, this big crowd on the grounds of the White House. And, but they, there was a man who was gone through the hatreds, and he was, be, he was turning them all around and saying, hey, we can, do, we, we, can, we can become Americans again. We can forgive each other. That's the whole thing that Lincoln was preaching. Uh, and so when, when for instance, uh, uh, when Robert E. Lee surrendered to General Grant at Appomattox, there were people in, in America who wanted Lee to be taken out and hanged. But Lincoln had told Grant, we're not going to do that, anything like that. We are going to recon reconcile everybody. And Grant told Lee, all you people have to do is surrender and promise not to fight anymore, and you can all go home, and we'll try to become Americans again. And at one point during the, after the surrender ceremony, the Union bands, the Army bands, started playing triumphal music, and Grant sent an instant order out to them to stop. Uh, and no, no cheers, no nothing like that. He said, the rebels are our countrymen again. I think that when I read that word, those phrases, I first came across it when I did a history of West Point many, many years ago. Uh, tears ran down my my cheeks. They really did. Well, just try to put yourself in the shoes of so many different individuals. And I thought another person who you brilliantly were able to allow the reader to fully engage in the mindset of John Brown, I thought you were oh, yes, really thank, just brilliant. Thank you. Uh, can you, can he he you is hear? a. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say he is the significant character, one of the most significant characters in our history, uh, and and certainly in this book. Uh, but he was so his his mind was so diseased. Uh, he first of all he had a serious psychological disorder. He was uh, as, as a manic depressive. And he would have these wild feats of, of of maniacal enthusiasm, and then when whatever he was trying to do didn't work out, he'd plunge into these depressions, and and he he seized on slavery as a cause uh, to defeat it. He seized on trying to defeat slavery. He'd failed at everything else, and, and but he he also had this violent streak. He he believed that without the emission of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. That, that's totally opposed to what the Christian religion teaches. Uh, but that was what John Brown believed. And uh, so he triggered this 
it did a lot to trigger the war. He went up to Boston, and he got a lot of people who hated the South, and, and they put up the money for him to buy the guns and so forth and attack this armor's at the Harper's Ferry Armory, there was 100,000 guns in there. And Brown hoped he could get his hands on those guns and pass them out to, to uh, slaves and start a race war in the South. He, he had maps of every southern state, and he had identified the counties where blacks outnumbered whites. He, 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 was, he was really ready to massacre tens and tens of thousands of people. And it, it would have led to the extermination of the black race in America. There's no doubt about it. Uh, but uh, there, there was another uh, figure stepped into the picture, uh, Robert E. Lee, Colonel Robert E. Lee. He was sent to Harper's Ferry, and he stopped John Brown. And then he sent uh, men out to Brown's headquarters, and they found in Brown's correspondence these six Letters from these six respectables, two of them were millionaires, people who had given the man the money to let, to let this maniac uh, loose in, in, in the South. That's what they wanted to see. And uh, it was so such a, a sad thing to see how, how this, this the, especially when, when people in the South said uh, – that, that he realized that these respectable New Englanders had, had unleashed John Brown on them, they turned to each other and said, they want to make another Santo Domingo of us. Wow. And Santo Domingo was the name that they used for Haiti. And that, so this is 58 years, no, 54 years after there had been this, uh, no, 58 it is, 58 years after there had been this massacre on Haiti, these people, that was the first thing their minds went to when they, went, when they heard that these, these secret six, as they called them, these six backers, uh, had, had, had supported John Brown. And that had more to do with starting the Civil War than John Brown himself. Well, I thought what was also really critical to understanding his personality and just his mental incapacitation, if you will, uh, for, I guess, comprehending what is real and what is just an illusion in his own mind. Oh, yes. He, he didn't really. He, 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 he didn't. really was out there. And the fact that his own son pleaded with him. Oh, I know. And he just, so he, he was so dismissive was really startling. Oh, and, and then uh, a few years before he attacked Harper's Ferry, he was in Kansas. They were fighting a sort of mini civil war before the big war in Kansas between Southerners and Nor and, Nor and, and Northerners. And Brown uh, volunteered to join this. And he went down into this river valley and he found a, a, a little settlement of Southerners. They had no weapons. Uh, he dragged seven men out of their houses and he shot them. And then he ordered his sons to hack them up with cavalry swords. This was he saw that he thought this would terrorize the Southerners and maybe they'd retreat, but of course it just it just inflamed everybody. Uh, and, and, but that was how he thought. He he, he really had a, a completely unstable personality in every way you can think of. But he did have, uh, and and this is why they wrote John Brown's Body, the great song. He did have this burning desire to free the slaves. Uh, but he didn't know how to go about it. 
And, and that's why the President of the United States, James Buchanan, when he heard that <clears throat> the South was seceding, he, he said, there is nothing that we can do now. It's become a disease of, in the public mind. And that there, imagine, uh, the President of the United States saw how, how, how unreal things had gotten that he could no longer, he, could, he couldn't hope to bring the two sections together in a peaceful way. Well, it just seems as though his delusions um, were, in his mind, the only way to go to end slavery, even though he was apparently an ultra-religious individual. And it's just interesting how people will use whatever tools that they can to defend their argument for oh, what that's they so want true. to do. There's a wonderful anecdote. Uh, about a Catholic priest after Brown was captured. A Catholic priest came to see him, and he asked him why he was doing this, why he wanted to unleash this terrible race war. And he said, and, 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 the, and the, the Brown said, the Bible told me to do it. And this priest who knew, knew a good deal about the Bible said, I, I don't think you've got the Bible. You're right about that. Uh, St. Paul told slaves to obey their masters. And uh, there was, there's nothing in the Bible that, that, that suggests that slavery is wrong. And Brown, who was, was lying down on a, on a sort of bed on the floor, uh, sat up and said, well, if that's what the Bible said, we ought to burn that too. <laughs> so this was, this was how totally unstable the guy was. Now, it's interesting. You also talk about Harriet Beecher Stowe. And how her own religious influences really, um, I, I guess, conveyed what you consider to be a racist perspective, which is very surprising to people that don't necessarily um, view her her book as something like that. Um, and hail it as something that was, you know, a brilliant book that was necessary, especially during that time, to help people to understand what the life of a slave was like. Yes. And I, once again, you pinpoint yet another symptom that demonstrates this disease in the public mind. Could you share with our audience about what these, um, what her spiritual message, which is often ignored and not embraced, and uh, also what I guess led to her to stick to those principles. I, I, June, I think that uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe is one of the most, if you can, uh, people that you have to sort of think it's this is a paradox, you know, it's mm. both, uh, both truths on both sides. Harriet Beecher Stowe did arouse many people to, 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 to concern about the slaves and so forth, but she also was. <clears throat> portrayed the blacks as simple-minded idiots uh uncle tom uh you know that's a that's a that's an insult if it's if a, if a black person today a man calls another man an uncle tom that means he's one of these guys that'll do anything a white man tells him to do and this was that's this was her idea of uncle tom this was totally wrong about about a way to describe thousands of blacks in the South, even during the era of slavery. I, I, and the, I call this chapter the real Uncle Tom and the unknown South that he, he helped create. And I show 
I found in my research that there was a real Uncle Tom, a man named Josiah Henson, and he was anything but a yes man. He, 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 when he grew up, he, he became the overseer of his master's farm, and he took crops to market and he bargained for them at terrific prices. He made more money for, for his master on this Maryland farm than any other white overseer ever made. And then I go on to show and to, to to tell the readers that this this man was not an exception. He wasn't some something some uh, miracle angel descended from heaven. There were thousands of black men all through the South working as overseers of these uh, of of huge farms all over the place, and and doing the same thing, getting people to to work hard and. And and, uh, and and produce wealth for their masters and to some extent for themselves. But slavery was a rotten system. No, you, you're never going to hear me defend slavery in every way, any way, shape, or form. What, I'm, what I try to show in this chapter is that even in spite of slavery, there were these black men who were doing remarkable things and showing they had the intelligence to do a lot more. And, and I, I, this this was something that uh, the people they call the abolitionists, the Northerners who hated the South, they they would they didn't want to accept this idea. They wanted to believe that the South was the poorest section of the country, and this and and the ab and and the North was so much wealthier. In fact, the South was twice as wealthy as the North. If the South had seceded, they would have been the fourth wealthiest country in the whole world. Of the ten southern state, of the ten states that were the wealthiest in the country, six of them were su- were, were southern states. So, uh, and and I insist that we we should learn and 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 realize that these black men had a lot to do with creating the success of the uh, of these farms in the South, and uh, and that's that's another reason why we can absolutely rejoice that slavery was was was. Uh, was was finally gotten rid of uh, in the Civil War, but how much, how wonderful it would have been if we could have uh, been, been, found a system where uh, the, 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 this whole thing was accomplished peacefully. Mm. This is what Lincoln wanted to do. He wanted to pay each slave owner uh, a, a, a certain amount of money for each slave and gradually free part of the slaves. That's you know. About a quarter of them in the first ten years, and a quarter in the next ten years. He, Lincoln saw that this would uh, reduce to to zero minus the fear of a slave uh, uprising. And he, Lincoln, thought that if they that they would accept this formula, that the South would accept this formula, slavery would disappear completely by 1890, and and all of these tens of you know the million men that died in the war these all these young men would not have uh would not have died and and the the blacks i think would have emerged as uh, with a with a with a leg up on 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 being treated respectably and 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 uh, the people would recognize that they the the talented ones as they emerged and so it, it it emphasizes to me what a tragedy the Civil War was. The possibilities, this is something I try to get into in the book, the possibilities of a peaceful solution were there, but we just kept missing them. I just want to make one more comment about Uncle Tom's Cabin, and yeah. I thought this was really lovely that you 
bring up the fact that Uncle Tom had more of a spiritual message, which really was not even embraced. It was just overlooked entirely. Yes, yes. Very interesting because at the time, religion was so influential in everyone's lives back then. And to just completely ignore this man's spiritual message, the fact that he chose to take the higher road and chose to forgive uh, those that inflicted pain and suffering upon his life, upon his family's life, that was really what they should have been doing instead of turning to violence. Yes, there's no doubt about it. Uncle Tom had a message for everybody. That, that, that's, that's undoubtedly true. Mr. Fleming, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show today. We are out of time. Would you share with our audience your website, and also uh, any other books that you'd like to share with them. Uh, yes, I think there's, there's a, a, a wonderful book that's about to be published as an e-book. It's called, I mentioned it already, it's called 1776 Year of Illusions. And uh, it, that, that tells you the inside story of the American Revolution, just as I try to tell the inside story of the Civil War and the disease in the public mind. Thank you so much. Mr. Fleming, I really hope that you come back. I really enjoyed having you on the show today. I would love to come back, June. There's lots more we can talk about. Thank you. And, folks, please pick up a copy of Thomas Fleming's book, A Disease in the Public Mind, A New Understanding of Why We Fought the Civil War. Have a great afternoon, everyone. <laughs>